0: And so we uh, we have seen uh, Moses uh, going up the mountain, pleading with God, "Show me Your glory." God tells him He's going to show him His goodness, and He identifies His glory and His goodness together, right, as as one thing. And and uh, uh, and it's very interesting because the way God reveals His glory is all about His magnificent love, you know. Uh, It's kind of interesting, just a little side note, when you think about that, because we usually think of the glory of God as the sizzle. You know, the glory of God, that means that, I mean, fire is breaking out everywhere, or, uh, you know, uh, just uh, magnificent moments. Like, for example, in the sixth chapter of Isaiah, you know, uh, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. But it's interesting how here... God uh, identifies His glory as His unbounding love, and that's that's what He reveals uh, uh, to Moses, and He calls it His goodness. You can go back and listen to what we said on Rosh Hashanah about that. That's just a really great thing to meditate on. That uh, Moses says, "Show me Your glory." God says, "Okay, I'll show you My goodness." You know. And then a few verses down it says, and then, you know, he will, will reveal his glory, his glory, his goodness, his goodness, his glory. It's like and They're like interchangeable. And then, uh, of course, um, we see that Moses has this experience. Uh, and it's important that we get this, that Moses has this experience. The people have not seen this, but Moses is up the mountain and, and he is the one who experiences, uh, experiences this. And he knows for sure now that the people are forgiven, that he's he and the children of Israel are indeed forgiven and that God loves them and is restoring them. And so now God takes uh, Moses and tells him, "Okay, now you're going to come back up and you're going to bring the tablets. We're going to do this again. Right. Uh, And then we saw last night uh, that God enters into this uh, word again with him about his covenant and. And about how the people are not to play the harlot, not to do the golden calf again, right? But be wholly devoted, W-H-O-L-L, wholly, completely uh, devoted uh, to God. As we said last night, to love Him back, right? That is uh, this love relationship, this covenant of love that we have with, uh, with God and that he'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. And by the way, you know, it is, isn't it interesting, at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, Yeshua says, go and make disciples of all the nations, immersing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, identifying himself with Adonai, you know, here in Exodus. I will, I will be with you. I will not uh, abandon you. And then last night we looked at a number of passages that it's quite clear that we are forgiven people, and that God loves us dearly. Uh, and uh, but Moses here in Exodus thirty-four, Moses has this experience. Okay, the people are still at the bottom of the mountain again. Okay, now the good news is uh, that this time they uh, don't—they uh, haven't made a golden calf. You know, so we could say that they've repented. You know we might wonder where is the repentance, right? Uh, uh, God has forgiven them and God has not abandoned them and God's not going to kill them. Where's the repentance? Well, we see repentance here in that they, Moses went up for 40 days and 40 nights, but they they don't build a golden calf again. That's repentance. That's turning. That's turning their ways. See? So uh, we do see repentance in the people. The people have indeed uh, changed. Now, A little note here about those 40 days and 40 nights. The tradition is that the first day of the 40 days and 40 nights is the first of Elul. And the last day is today, Yom Kippur. That Moses comes down the mountain on Yom Kippur. Okay, Uh, So that is uh, kind of interesting as well. But now, you see, on this day, what's fascinating about it is, is that the people are going to get it. So far, it's just been Moses. But now the people are going to get it, and we'll see how that works here. All right, so uh, we left off last time uh, in verse 28. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. And you think one day is like over the top. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, verse 29. And it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down the mountain, that Moses did not know that his, the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him. And when Aaron and all the sons of Israel see saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation... "...returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. And afterward all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, uh, what had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of Moses' face shone. And so Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with them. So evidently, something was going on with Moses' face. Now in Hebrew, it's a very strange construction here. Because when it says his face shone, it basically, the the word is the word for horn. And it's, the, it's almost used almost every other time in the Bible for horn, like the horns of the altar, they blew a horn, right? So you wonder, so what, what does this mean? Well, we don't need to get into uh, all the dynamics uh, of the translation, but evidently the idea must have been that uh, Moses' face, pro- not that his face was shining, so to speak, you know, like uh, uh, like it was a light in his face. But that his face like, uh, um, gave forth some kind of uh, um, visual of something coming out of his face that uh, communicated the glory of God. And so, in English, the best we can do is his face shone. Uh, his face uh, glowed perhaps, although the word light is not used here. But that's what his face did. Somehow it communicated the glory of God. Okay. Uh, And that it did uh, have the uh, appearance, evidently, of light coming out. Okay. All right. So that's just a little interesting thing there. Uh, but what the most important thing is is that the people recognized that there was somehow this communication with God, and there was the presence of God, and that what God had shown Moses when he passed by, evidently could be somehow manifested on Moses' face. Okay, uh, this perhaps you know when God says He was going to do miracles and show the uniqueness and otherliness. Of of uh, of their relationship with God, perhaps this was, uh, you know, part of that, okay? But the point is is that when Moses came down the mountain, it communicated that Moses had been in the presence of God, and he has the tablets, and that they were starting over again, and that the people could uh, sense the presence of God, and kind of like at Sinai. They were afraid to go near. You know, it's kind of an interesting uh, parallel uh, uh, to Mount Sinai, right? Uh, And that this time he comes down, they're not playing the harlot. This time he comes down, they're listening. This time he doesn't break the commandments. This time they receive it. This time they hear the teaching, right? But we see that in terms of Moses' very being, that when he, as it says here, when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel uh, what had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses that the skin of his face shone. Then Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him, so this is kind of interesting it's not that Moses covered his face so the people could never see his face. You notice that it's when Moses is speaking to the people, they could see his they could see it when Moses is not speaking with the people but he's can be seen, he covers his face okay when Moses goes into the uh uh, tabernacle into the uh, holy place. He uncovers it when he speaks with God. So the fascinating thing, just by observation, is when he's speaking, he, he is unveiled. When he is not speaking, he is veiled. So that the people then could not uh, see uh, this manifestation of God on, uh, on his face. Okay? So again, what it conveys to us is now this is a new beginning, okay? That's what we really get out of this. This is a new beginning. The people are obedient. Moses is in glory, so to speak, as much as he could possibly be. Uh, and uh, he speaks forth the word. He is the, the, the mediator. And it all seems to be working, okay? All right. Now, the only problem for us is this we know the rest of the story that while moses comes down and everything seems on the surface just in this passage to be okay and there is restoration and that is the first thing we want to get let me repeat that before we go on that we want to get that that the people are restored that's why this is such a marvelous passage the people are restored and so one of the things we learn from this, which I should dwell on this a few minutes more. The thing we get from this is God has given them another chance. And again, let me reiterate, that golden calf was a huge sin. I mean, it was really a deal breaker, you know. Uh, God, in his righteousness, had every right to kill them all off and start over again with Moses, which according to the text is what he wanted to do. See, and we're supposed to get that from these chapters. That in that interaction with Moses and God, what God wanted to do was kill them all off and start over again with Moses. And then what he wants to do is abandon them. They'll go on, but he's not going to go with them. And then on both counts, he relents because Moses pleads. And then God shows Moses, when Moses pleads to see his glory, he shows him his goodness, his forgiveness, his abounding loving kindness, slow to anger and so on, okay? And so, uh, God assures Moses that Moses comes down, and it is evidently manifested in the person of Moses that they are restored. And now they listen, and uh, seemingly, they're going to be obedient. And that's why then, by the way, beginning in chapter 35, immediately, it's about the building of the tabernacle. Like, building the place where God is going to live. Where the place... Where God is going to be with them, see so there's this restoration. they're restored, and now they're going to have this manifestation of God in the tabernacle. All seems to be well, except for the fact that the people continue to sin, and the people continue to grumble, and the greater sin, c- corporate sin is is about to take place. You know, whenever I teach uh, the MSI class on the, uh, on the Torah, or in the Torah study, when, you know, when we come to these portions, I always ask the question, you know, what is it that kept the people out of, out of the land? What's, what's the Are Not that why, what kept them out of the land. Why did they die in the wilderness? I would say about 8.5 out of 10 times, the answer given is, the golden calf when that's not it right right that the greater sin is about to take place and that is when God tells Moses to send a representative from the tribes to check out the land and then they come back except for Joshua and Caleb they are convinced that there is no way that they're going to be able to overtake these enemies. But we saw what did God say right here when he says, I'm going to show you miracles like no other nation. The very first thing he says, I'm going to uh, you know, go before you and I will remove all those ites, all those people. And what happens? Well, they don't build another molten calf. They basically don't believe the promise. They don't embrace the promise. They don't, they don't believe what God says. They don't trust in the Lord. They may know, he, I mean, He's the Almighty One, but do they really get who Adonai is? Do they really get it? Well, seemingly, they're having still a problem. And so, uh, you know, in that uh, 13th and 14th chapter of the book of Numbers, we see that the people do not believe. And and then the judgment comes that this generation will die in the wilderness. That has not had... See, they would not have died in the wilderness if all was well and good here in chapter 34. If it had just stayed that way. But it didn't. The greater sin was yet to come. So what it tells us is that in Deuteronomy chapter 29, when Moses says that God has not given you eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of understanding to this day. And basically what's going to happen is you're going to go in the land and you're going to sin and then ultimately you're going to be judged and you're going to have to go out of the land. Just remember these words that it's not the end of the story for the nation of Israel. That God will indeed restore you uh, you know, and, and He will give you a, a heart to believe he will give you eyes to see, uh I, you know, and ears to hear. And it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30 that he's gonna circumcise your heart, that you will indeed believe. That's what he says. That's going to happen. But Moses says, I know you too well. See? What we learn here from this is that the the tablets of stone and the teaching that Moses gives, in and of itself, physically, and the, way it's tra- and the way the word is transmitted to the people is not going to have the power to transform their lives. That is what we learn in the Torah, in the wilderness wanderings, in the giving of the Torah. Not that there's anything wrong with the word, not that there is uh, uh, something wrong with uh, Moses, but the words simply being transmitted on the stone and by word of mouth, did not have the power to transform their lives. That's why, by the way, you know, lots of people study the Bible, right? What do, what do we read in, in the uh, New Covenant? Even uh, Hasatan knows the Bible. It's not magic. It's not, it's not magic that the Word of God doesn't come back void. It's not magic uh, that uh, the Word lasts forever. But for the word to take hold in a person's life, something else must be going on—not just simply the words on the page. Okay, I can tell you in my own life. I think I shared this with someone a few weeks ago. That you know, when I was growing up, there was nothing more boring than reading the Bible, and it was almost like uh, like it made no sense. It was it it just it was like like a brick wall. And it was not until I was investigating the claims of Yeshua. Not yet a believer, but I was investigating the claims of Messiah. That it began to mean something to it. it began to have interest. It began to be clear. It began to make sense. Because, you see, what they were missing was the Ruach HaKodesh. What they were missing was what God needed to provide in order for them to, to be able to be victorious and obedient and to be able to live in such a way that reflects, I am the Lord. See? So, in the Brit there is a passage that talks about this thing with Moses' veil and Moses' face shining. Let's turn there. It's in the Brit It's in the New Covenant. And it is in... 2 Corinthians chapter 3 2 Corinthians chapter 3 all right now this would take a long time for us to unpack so i'm just going to highlight a few things here at the beginning of the ver- of the chapter by the way by the way i uh, y- somewhere and i'm not sure exactly where uh, you can i believe download a series of messages that I gave on this uh, a number of years back. But I do believe we do have it electronically online. Anyway, uh, in chapter 3, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, a, or do we need a, some a letter of commendation uh, to you or from you? He says to these people, You are our letter, written in our heart, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Messiah. You are an a, a epistle. It's a Greek word. You are a letter of Messiah cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the human heart, and such confidence we have through Messiah toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Now we're getting to the point here. Who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. For the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was. How shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory. Okay, now let me just uh, say a few things uh, about this. Okay, M- uh, here Paul is not comparing uh, things like this when he talks about the letter and the spirit. He's not comparing grace and law. He's not comparing the uh, a spiritual meaning of the text with the plain meaning of the text. He's not even comparing outward obedience to inward obedience. And he's certainly not comparing Judaism and Christianity. The reason I say that is when you read in commentaries, you read commentaries about this, you get a variety of these things, sadly. What he is comparing is the spiritual situation of the Jewish people before the coming of the Messiah and the spiritual situation after the coming of the Messiah. He's comparing the transmission of the Torah to the people after as opposed to before, okay? Now, again, I'm not, you know, uh, we're not going to go verse by verse. He's speaking somewhat rhetorically here even, to, you know, uh, and so on. But his point is, is that the people are living letters because they are living examples of what it means to be a follower of the Messiah. They are living examples of the fruit of, in this context, living examples of the fruit of Paul's ministry. They don't have to say, oh, I'm a follower of Paul and I agree with his teaching because it's in their lives. Why is it in their lives? Because they are the recipient of the Torah post-Yeshua, meaning in their heart. What did Yeshua say? What do we read in uh, Jeremiah 31 about the new covenant? I will place the Torah in their heart, in their inward parts. What does Ezekiel say? I will give them a new heart. And he says, not of stone, Ezekiel says, not of stone, but of flesh. Their flesh is not sin. You know, their flesh means not a, not a stone, not stony, but like a pliable, you know. Uh, and so what he's saying here is so true that in Messiah Yeshua, we can look, we can go back to Ezekiel to Exodus. 34 and say yes he does indeed give us that second chance and in messiah we now have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart of understanding and a circumcised heart that that faith can endure and that we can really have victory it's an issue of promise and fulfillment of before and after not about better or worse you know that's very important to understand after all, in the unfolding of God's plan, how could there be, when God makes a promise, how can it be worse than another promise? No. It is the ability of the recipients of the promise to be able to receive it. That's what's better or worse. Not the covenant, not the Torah, not what God promises, but the ability of the recipient to receive it. Our people in the past could not. And that's why we needed Yeshua to come. And that's why we need to embrace Him. That's why we need to love Him. And that's why we're so thankful. Because in Him, we can, we can be assured of that forgiveness. We can bask in His loving kindness. And on top of the whole thing, we can really love Him back with a wholehearted love that doesn't fail in the sense of, uh, uh in, in the sense of being separated from Him in in the sense that uh, uh, of not having the atonement, in the sense of not having the uh, removal of the sins. God has indeed done that. That is what He wants. He loves us. You see, He loves us so much that He will do anything to remove the barrier so that we can love Him back. It just gives such great meaning to that famous passage that's so overworked, we hardly ever even think about it. In this way, God loved the world by sending his only begotten son, who in Psalm 2 is called a king, right? That whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, because God is righteous, he has to remove the sin barrier if he's going to have this love relationship with us. And that is indeed what he, what he did. And I know that many of us are aware of it and many of us know it, but I hope that we can appreciate it all over again. And really be able to uh, rejoice in that. Now, at the very end of this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says this. He talks about the veil, the veiling of Moses and the fading of the glory. Okay? Uh, and, and what he says is, you see, that shows that the people, the people were not able to really uh, embrace the glory of God. They were not able to. And so Moses would have to veil his face. Here he refers to it as fading. See, But it's not because there was something wrong with the glory. Not because there was something wrong with Moses. But the people were not equipped to be able to receive it. But only now in Messiah Yeshua are we able to take in, so to speak, this glory of God. See? Now... Actually, before I read that last verse, keep your hand there. And you can turn to the Gospel of John in the first chapter. And again, I will say, in chapter 1, in verse 14, first in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What I said on Rosh Hashanah is I don't believe it is a coincidence that the words grace and truth and glory are all here together that describe Yeshua. It's not a coincidence that those words are all used together in Exodus chapter 33 and 34 when God reveals His glory to Moses that He's full of grace and truth. And not only that, but Uh, when he says in verse 17, well, actually, wait, wait, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Yeshua HaMashiach. Do you see? There's nothing wrong with the law here. It's the transmission. The law was given through Moses. It's about given and realized. That is what is being compared here. It was given through Moses. It was delivered through Moses. But it is realized. It, it, it becomes true to life. It comes alive in Messiah Yeshua. And he uses the words, again, grace and truth. See? And uh, there we go. Okay. So we see that here in John chapter 1. This uh, relationship of grace and truth and glory with Yeshua. And what John is saying is this is, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, Adonai, right? Okay, now, if you go back to, oh, let's keep your hands still there in 2 Corinthians, chapter three, but go to the book of Hebrews in chapter one. In the book of Hebrews in chapter one, we read God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in son, in sonship, or as it says, in his son. "...whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also made the world." Now, verse 3 is, if you ever have, li- if you would like to underline, highlight, or memorize, Hebrews 1.3, when people say, who is Yeshua to you? Just say this verse. He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand, of the majesty of high. We can stop there. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. That is who Yeshua is. Okay? And so Yeshua is the glory. If you read this passage in 2 Corinthians on your own, you'll see the word glory is like repeated over and over and over again. Okay? All right. So now the very last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, "...but we all with unveiled face..." We become, see, like Moses in a a sense here, showing this glory of God. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, is what we can see, so to speak, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. Okay. Being transformed. We are being transformed. This is what is greater The people could not be transformed by only receiving the teaching. People are transformed when we embrace Yeshua and a supernatural thing happens to us. The Spirit of God... Basically, it is God comes to live in us via the Holy Spirit. And this is where empowerment comes. To live holy, to live godly, to love the enemy, to show unbounding, love and mercy to those who hurt us to turn the other cheek to to not uh, 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 hurt vulnerable people by not putting a stumbling block in front of a blind person that empowerment comes because of Yeshua he is indeed the radiance of the glory of God for many of us we have in our heads that Yeshua even though we say it we talk about the Jewish essence of the faith and no matter who we are Sometimes, it's just because of what is so ingrained in our culture and, and in who we are, that Yeshua is not, you know, He is the Lord, but he's, it's not exactly the same. He is Adonai. That's who He is. And He came into this world, and He loved us so much that He made sure that we could love Him back, that we could live in covenant love, live in covenant relationship. And that's what Yom Kippur is about. Because what did he do on Yom Kippur? Well, I won't take the time to read it, but in Leviticus chapter 16, what is it that has taken place? Uh, is is that Yeshua has come and he's like the goat. He's like the first goat, right? Uh, uh, he is slain, right? As a substitute for you and me. Because of the righteousness of God, He can't just pass over sin. He has to deal with it, and it's dealt with in Yeshua himself, right? So Yeshua dies, but he defeats death, and he's raised from the dead. But, as you may know, and as we read in the Torah portion, there is the Azazel, right? The Azazel, the scapegoat. That's where the word comes from. Actually, nobody knows what Azazel actually means. In fact, uh, some people believe it, it actually was the name of a demon god of some sort. Very interesting. Okay, but uh, uh, the Azazel was a sad situation. The Azazel, is translated scapegoat because that's how it functions. You know, that's how it functions. What is a scapegoat? You, know, you feel sorry for the scapegoat. The scapegoat takes the blame for the sins or the wrongs of others. And that's what Yeshua did. The high priest would lay his hands on this goat, right? And he would pray that the sins of the people would be transferred to the goat. And then the goat goes out into the wilderness. And this sin is so bad that the person who leads him out into the wilderness has to go through these ritual washings before he can come back in. And so Yeshua uh, removes our sin. That's what we see, this great picture of uh, of the uh, the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. That Yeshua removes our sin and He pays the price for our sin. And He becomes, as it were, even the place of the atonement in Him. So He is our atonement. And on the day of atonement, we rejoice that God has provided the means for us to live freely in covenant relationship. But as we know, we still indeed do sin and we'll be talking this, later and this evening about that uh, when we uh, talk about the issue of afflicting our soul uh, and that we still need to come to the Lord uh, with our sins. You know, that guilt is when we feel guilty as believers, that's actually it's like pain. You know, you need to feel pain if you're going to if you're going to heal something. You need to you need the alert that there's something wrong. Well, that's what guilt does. For us okay and so we know that we can experience a forgiveness daily when we confess our sins indeed to God you see and and so we experience that atonement in a, or the forgiveness over and over again. it was made for us once and we enter into the relationship once yet it's experienced over and over again see? That's why we don't say, I'm forgiven, I can do whatever I want. It's just not how we're made. It's not how the relationship works, see? But going back to Exodus chapter 34, we see that God gives them another chance. We see that God restores the relationship. But what we learn from the Brit Shah is that in Messiah Yeshua, it sticks, that we have a circumcised heart, That God will not allow us to die in the wilderness. I could go on and on, which I do. Because it says in Hebrews chapter three and four, right? That it is unbelief that causes us to die in the wilderness. But today, if we hear his voice, let us not harden our heart, but let us confess our sins. Let us rejoice in him. Let us have the assurance of knowing that indeed the glory never fades and that in Messiah Yeshua, His faithfulness is indeed new. Lord, thank you, God, for this great assurance that we have. Lord God, thank you for Yeshua, our Messiah. Thank you, God, that that no matter what we've done, you allow us to start over again. And I pray, Lord, on this new year, we would indeed start over again. I pray, Lord, that as we uh, uh, continue on this journey uh, going all the way through Sukkot, that we would indeed start over again that there would be a sense uh, of newness. And Lord, thank you, God, that you have not left us uh, with only instruction, but that you have uh, given us instruction and the empowerment to live it out, the empowerment to really be loved and love freely. Lord, I pray that the quality of our lives would improve in this way, that we would not bear grudges and hold hatreds and, have long lists of people that we got to deal with and, and and then bear grudges that people don't forgive us for stuff we've done. And it goes on and on and on. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be free and that we would truly manifest your presence and your love in this world, God. And yes, your righteousness, your holiness, God. And yes, God, It is clear that you are, you do indeed judge sin. All the more reason, Lord, why we need to be in covenant relationship with. Thank you, Lord, for our atonement for Yeshua the Messiah. And we pray in Yeshua's name.